Part Two, Chapter Seven, of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, by Abner Doubleday, Part Two, Chapter Seven, the final chapter, General Retreat of the Enemy, Criticisms of Distinguished Confederate Officers. Lee was greatly dispirited at Pickett's failure, but worked with untiring energy to repair the disaster. There was an interval of full a mile between Hill and Longstreet, and the plain was swarming with fugitives making their way back in disorder. He hastened to get ready to resist the counter-charge, which he thought was inevitable, and to plant batteries behind which the fugitives could rally. He also made great personal exertions to reassure and reassemble the detachments that came in. He did not for a moment imagine that Meade would fail to take advantage of this golden opportunity to crush the Army of Virginia and end the war. The most distinguished rebel officers admit the great danger they were in at this time, and express their surprise that they were not followed up. The fact is, Meade had no idea of leaving the ridge. I conversed the next morning with a corps commander who had just left him. He said, Meade says he thinks he can hold out for part of another day here, if they attack him. This language satisfied me that Meade would not go forward if he could avoid it, and would not impede in any way the rebel retreat across the Potomac. Lee began to make preparations at once, and started his trains on the morning of the 4th. By night Rhodes' division, which followed them, was in bivouac two miles west of Fairfield. It was a difficult task to retreat burdened with four thousand prisoners, and a train fifteen miles long, in the presence of a victorious enemy, but it was successfully accomplished as regards his main body. The roads, too, were bad and much cut up by the rain. While standing on Little Round Top, Meade was annoyed at the fire of a rebel battery posted on an eminence beyond the wheat-field, about a thousand yards distant. He inquired what troops those were, stationed along the stone fence which bounded the hither side of the wheat-field. Upon ascertaining that it was Crawford's division of the Fifth Corps, he directed that they be sent forward to clear the woods in front of the rebel skirmishers, who were very annoying, and to drive away the battery, but not to get into a fight that could bring on a general engagement. As Crawford unmasked from the stone fence the battery opened fire on his right, he sent Colonel Enst's regiment, deployed as skirmishers, against the guns, which retired as Ant approached. McCandless, who went forward with his brigade, moved too far to the right, and Crawford ordered him to change front and advance toward Round Top. He did so, and struck a rebel brigade in flank which was behind a temporary breastwork of rails, sods, etc. When this brigade saw a Union force apparently approaching from their own lines to attack them in flank, they retreated in confusion, after a short resistance, and this disorder extended during the retreat to a reserve brigade posted on the low ground in their rear. Their flight did not cease until they reached Horner's Woods, half a mile distant, where they immediately entrenched themselves. These brigades belonged to Hood's division, then under law. Longstreet says, When this, Pickett's, charge failed, I expected that, of course, the enemy would throw himself against our shattered ranks and try to crush us. 
I sent my staff officers to the rear to assist in rallying the troops, and hurried to our line of batteries as the only support that I could give them. I knew if the army was to be saved, these batteries must check the enemy. For unaccountable reasons, the enemy did not pursue his advantage. Longstreet always spoke of his own men as invincible, and stated that on the second they did the best three hours' fighting that ever was done, but Crawford's attack seemed to show that they too were shaken by the defeat of Pickett's grand charge. A note here. Crawford was also one of those who took a prominent part in the defense of Fort Sumter at the beginning of the war. We each commanded detachments of artillery on that occasion. End of the note. In regard to the great benefit we would have derived from a pursuit, it may not be out of place to give the opinion of a few more prominent Confederate officers. Colonel Alexander, chief of Longstreet's artillery, says in a communication to the Southern Historical Papers, quote, I have always believed that the enemy here lost the greatest opportunity they ever had of routing Lee's army by a prompt offensive. They occupied a line shaped somewhat like a horseshoe. I suppose the greatest diameter of this horseshoe was not more than one mile, and the ground within was entirely sheltered from our observation and fire, with communications by signals all over it, and they could concentrate their whole force at any point, and in a very short time, without our knowledge. Our line was an enveloping semicircle, over four miles in development, and communication from flank to flank, even by courier, was difficult, the country being well cleared and exposed to the enemy's view and fire, the roads all running at right angles to our lines, and some of them, at least, broad turnpikes where the enemy's guns could rake for two miles. Is it necessary now to add any statement as to the superiority of the Federal force, or the exhausted and shattered condition of the Confederates for a space of at least a mile in their very centre, to show that a great opportunity was thrown away? I think General Lee himself was quite apprehensive the enemy would repost, and that it was that apprehension which brought him alone out to my guns, where he could observe all the indications. General Trimble, who commanded a division of Hill's Corps, which supported Pickett in his advance, says, By all the rules of warfare, the Federal troops should, as I expected they would, have marched against our shattered columns and sought to cover our army with an overwhelming defeat. Colonel Sims, who commanded Sims' Georgia Brigade in the fight with Crawford, just referred to, writes to the latter, There was such confusion in our army so far as my observation extended, and I think we would have made but feeble resistance if you had pressed on, on the evening of the third. General Meade, however, overcome by the great responsibilities of his position, still clung to the ridge, and fearful of a possible disaster, would not take the risk of making an advance. And yet, if he could have succeeded in crushing Lee's army then and there, he would have saved two years of war, with its immense loss of life and countless evils. He might at least have thrown in Sedgwick's corps, which had not been actively engaged in the battle, for even if it was repulsed, the blows it gave would leave the enemy little inclination to again assail the heights. At 6.30 p.m. the firing ceased on the part of the enemy, 
and although they retained their position the next day, the Battle of Gettysburg was virtually at an end. The town was still full of our wounded, and many of our surgeons, with rare courage, remained there to take charge of them, for it required some nerve to run the risk of being sent to Libby Prison when the fight was over, a catastrophe which has often happened to our medical officers. Among the rest, the chief surgeons of the First Corps, Dr. Theodore Hurd and Dr. Thomas H. Bosch, refused to leave their patients, and in consequence of the hasty retreat of the enemy were fortunately not carried off. After the battle Meade had not the slightest desire to recommence the struggle. It is a military maxim that to a flying enemy must be given a wall of steel, or a bridge of gold. In the present instance it was unmistakably the bridge of gold that was presented. It was hard to convince him that Lee was actually gone, and at first he thought it might be a device to draw the Union army from its strong position on the heights. Our cavalry was sent out on the 4th to ascertain where the enemy were, and what they were doing. General Burney threw forward a reconnoitering party, and opened fire with a battery on a column making their way toward Fairfield. But he was checked at once and directed, on no account to bring on a battle. On the 5th, as it was certain the enemy were retreating, Sedgwick received orders to follow up the rear of the rebel column. He marched eight miles to Fairfield Pass. There Early, who was in command of the rearguard, was endeavouring to save the trains, which were heaped up in great confusion. Sedgwick, after a distant cannonade, reported the position too strong to be forced. It was a plain, two miles wide, surrounded by hills, and it would not have been difficult to take it. But Sedgwick knew Meade favoured the Bridge of Gold policy and was not disposed to thwart the wishes of his chief. In my opinion Sedgwick should have made an energetic attack, and Meade should have supported it with his whole army, for our cavalry were making great havoc in the enemy's train in rear, and if Lee, instead of turning on Kilpatrick, had been forced to form line against Meade, the cavalry, which was between him and his convoys of ammunition, in all probability might have captured the latter and ended the war. Stuart, it is true, was following up Kilpatrick, but he took an indirect route, and was nearly a day behind. I do not see why the force which was now promptly detached from the garrisons of Washington and Baltimore, and sent to Harper's Ferry, could not have formed on the Virginia side of the Potomac, opposite Williamsport, and with the cooperation of General Meade, have cut off the ammunition of which Lee stood so much in need. As the river had risen, and an expedition sent out by General French from Frederick had destroyed the bridge at Falling Waters, everything seemed to favor such a plan. The moment it was ascertained that Lee was cut off from Richmond and short of ammunition, the whole North would have turned out and made a second Saratoga of it. As it was, he had but few rounds for his cannon, and our artillery could have opened a destructive fire on him from a distance, without exposing our infantry. It was worth the effort, and there was little or no danger in attempting it. Meade had Sedgwick's fresh corps, and was reinforced by a division of eleven thousand men under General W. F. Smith, Baldy Smith. French's division of four thousand at Frederick, and troops from Washington and Baltimore were also available to assist in striking the final blow. 
The Twelfth Corps was also available, as Slocum volunteered to join in the pursuit. Meade, however, delayed moving at all until Lee had reached Hagerstown, and then took a route that was almost twice as long as that adopted by the enemy. Lee marched day and night to avoid pursuit, and when the river rose and his bridge was gone, so that he was unable to cross, he gained six days in which to choose a position, fortify it, and renew his supply of ammunition before Meade made his appearance. In consequence of repeated orders from President Lincoln to attack the enemy, Meade went forward and confronted Lee on the twelfth. He spent that day and the next in making reconnaissances, and resolved to attack on the fourteenth. But Lee left during the night, and by eight a.m. the entire army of the enemy were once more on Virginia soil. The Union loss in this campaign is estimated by the Count of Paris, who is an impartial observer, at 2,834 killed, 13,700 wounded, and 6,643 missing, total 23,186. The rebel loss he puts at 2,665 killed, 12,599 wounded, 7,464 missing, total 22,728. Among the killed in the battle on the rebel side were Generals Armistead, Barksdale, Garnett, Pender, and Semmes, and Pettigrew during the retreat. Among the wounded were Generals G. T. Anderson, Hampton, Jenkins, J. M. Jones, Kemper, and Scales. Archer was captured on the first day. Among the killed on the Union side were Major General Reynolds and Brigadier Generals Vincent, Weed, and Zook. Among the wounded were Major Generals Sickle, losing a leg, Hancock, Doubleday, Gibbon, Barlow, Warren, and Butterfield, and Brigadier Generals Graham, Stannard, Paul, losing both eyes, Barnes, Brooke, and Webb. This is the end of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg by Abner Doubleday. Thank you for listening.